turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through, 1 through 13. Paul, in this text, is going to give us a number of exhortations, just a series, kind of one after the other, of different exhortations and commands about how to be a godly uh, Christian, and specifically for Timothy, how to be a godly uh, pastor, a faithful pastor, an evangelist. Um, He's going to give a series of illustrations that we're going to see as we work through um, to kind of set those exhortations and set those commands into, uh, into context. And then he's going to end with a song, with, with, a, with a hymn, with a, a kind of a, a, a normative, like a, a standard Christian hymn from the, from the, early, uh, from the early church. Last, last week, if you'll remember, Second uh, Timothy chapter 1, we looked at uh, Paul and how he loved Timothy and how he cared about Timothy. Timothy was like a son to him. He had trained Timothy up. He had sent him out as a pastor. Timothy was a Christian because his mother uh, and his grandmother had shared the gospel with him, and they were, they were faithful believers. Paul called Timothy to be bold. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, right? Uh, he, he called Timothy to suffer with Jesus and to suffer with, with him. And then he talked about some of their mutual friends, some of whom had left and deserted Paul uh, there in, in prison in Rome, and some of whom had been loyal to Paul and sought him out and found him and, and took care of him. So that was kind of what we looked at in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Today we're in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then we're going to take a few minutes and, uh, and work through it. Starting in verse 1, we see, You then, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray your blessing on our time and your word this morning. We pray that you would quiet our hearts, that you would focus our minds, that you would help us to uh, encounter you and your glory in your, your word and to leave, uh, leave us changed people, leave us people who have been drawn closer to Christ. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, Timothy, uh, be strong. Don't be weak. Don't be cowardly. Uh, Don't be pushed around. Don't be swayed or intimidated by the world or the flesh of the devil. You be strong. But specifically, be strong, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus. So, so Timothy, don't, 
Don't be deceived. Don't be deluded into thinking that your success or your failure uh, in the Christian life is solely the result of your effort and your power and your strength. Right? It does. It does take effort and it does take strength and it does take uh, grit. Right? To, to to persevere as a Christian, but the strength and the grit that it takes comes from. Jesus. It comes from his grace. It's, 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 it's received rather than achieved. It's something that Jesus gives us through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So, so be strengthened, but specifically be strengthened by grace. God's grace doesn't save us and then just vanish and leave us to live the rest of our life in our own power and our own strength. God's grace saves us and then keeps us and strengthens us and brings us from immaturity to maturity. Right? It brings us from looking like myself to looking like, like Jesus. So, so grow and be transformed by God's grace. Be strengthened by it. But not just. Right? So verse 1 is kind of receive, right? Well, receive grace from Jesus. Be strengthened by grace from Jesus. Like take in and absorb the blessings that Jesus is extending to you. Verse 2 then says redirect it outward. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men. Who will be able to teach others also? So don't just grow, right? Don't don't just uh, grow and be fed and be nourished and then stop there, right? Don't just consume and consume, but rather rather take what you're learning, take what you're receiving from Jesus, and redirect it out. When God kind of called Abraham, He said, "I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the nation that I'm going to bring out of your offspring, and then I'm going to bless the world through you." So receive God's blessing and then channel it outward to bless. Others. Jesse told me just, uh, a week or two ago that he had some tomatoes in his yard that like all this rain came in and all the tomatoes started bursting on the vine because they were taking in too much, too much water and too much sun and they were growing too fast and before he could, could pluck them off the vine, they overgrew and burst. Right, which is which is an anal- it's an illustration for for a Christian who receives and takes in and consumes too much, like from God, Bible studies, books. If you ta- if all you do is take in and you never you never kind of channel what you're learning, what you're receiving, how you're growing, how you're experiencing God and the gospel outward, then you just become this over this overripe Christian that is that is little little good to to anyone. So be strengthened by the grace of Jesus, and then redirect it outward to help others grow and to encourage them and to and to teach them. But but it's not it's not just that you receive from God and then you extend it outward toward others. There are mul- look at all of the generations that you see here in verse two. Look at the various generations of the, Jesus. The, the Second Timothy two two is calling us to be disciples of Christ but to be disciples who make disciples of others, but specifically to be disciples who make disciple-making disciples, right? It's kind of a, there's, I mean, there's four generations in this one verse. What you have heard from me. So that's two, that's two, that's Paul and Timothy. What, what Timothy has heard from Paul, that's two generations there in the presence of many witnesses. So now you've got other people in this. So Timothy alongside other witnesses in this second generation, Paul is teaching them and now Paul is commissioning them to go, to go entrust that to faithful men. That's generation number three. So Paul teaches Timothy and others. Timothy and others 
she entrusts that to faithful men, that's generation number three, who themselves will be able to go and teach others also. So that's, that's four different generations that we see right in this, one, in this one verse. So be strengthened by the grace of Christ, be strengthened by hearing the word of God from Paul and from other people in the presence of many witnesses, and then proclaim the gospel and disciple others. There's a very easy point of application for this, for this verse right here. Right, what you've heard in the presence of many witnesses and trust to others who will be able to teach others. Right now, presently, you are hearing something in the presence of many witnesses. Right? Right, right now, you are experiencing the word of God and hearing it in the presence of others. So if you're going to apply this verse, essentially what it would mean is you should, pick, you should have one conversation this week, at least one conversation with someone about this passage or about this sermon. Right? Either, either a fellow member of your church that, that heard the sermon, talk with them about it and engage with them about it and ask them how they were blessed by it. Ask them what they agreed with. Ask them what they disagreed with. Have a, a meaningful, sharpening conversation with, or someone that didn't hear this, someone that's not a part of this church. Engage with them. Open, open to First Timothy and say, I learned something interesting at church this week. Why don't we, why don't we have a quick conversation about it? Friends, neighbors, coworkers, children, family members, you, you name it, right? In fact, we have, uh, there are discussion questions that we post on our website specifically for that reason, so that you can kind of uh, let that, get, you know, if you're sitting around the dinner table and you want to have a conversation with your kids about the Bible, you can use those to kind of stimulate conversation, or if you want to have a conversation with a neighbor or, or a family uh, member, you can use, use that. So, so when, when Timothy, when Paul says, I want you to hear this spiritual truth from me, and then I want you to entrust it to others, and I want you to teach them to entrust it to others. That's kind of this, this plan of discipleship, this kind of um, culture of discipleship that God envisions for the local church. Not, not one guy stands up front and teaches to a bunch of people, and they hear it and receive it, and that's it, but rather a culture of discipleship where all of God's people are listening to one another and learning from one another and teaching one another and admonishing one another, right? Which, which takes it. So to, to be willing to disciple someone else takes, takes boldness. You have to be brave. You have to, you have to step in and intentionally have a, a difficult conversation with someone else if you want to, to teach them. And to receive and to be taught by someone else takes humility, Right? It takes, you, have, you have to be able to humble yourself and say, there's, there's something that this person can teach me that I might not already know. So the question is, how much of our Christian life is marked by fear? I don't want to disciple that person. I don't want to confront that person. I don't want to, they, they don't want to hear what I have to say anyway, so I'm not going to even bother with it. And how much of our Christian life is marked by pride? Right? I don't need you to disciple me. I'm already smarter than you anyway. There's nothing, I'm further along in my career than you. There's nothing that you can teach me because I already know everything that you know anyway. Fear when it comes to discipling others, pride when it comes to being discipled by others. Both are, both are sins, right? Both are explicitly, uh, you know, labeled as sins in Scripture. So if we, want, if we want our church, our local church, to be healthy and to thrive and to, and to be a growing, uh, a church that's growing in health, we need to repent of fear, we need to repent of uh, pride, and we need to be, you know, to disciple others, and we need to be discipled by others. I did some math this week. Um, 
if every so so if if the church so that's like the local church right the, God envisions the local church to be a, a culture of discipleship where people are listening to and learning from one another. They're, they're discipling one another boldly and they're being discipled uh, with humility. But that's also God's vision for the, the global, like the church, the universal church as, as well, is that it, it kind of move forward. It, it kind of, that God's church is built and God's kingdom is established by discipleship, right? If um, I, I did some math to figure out how long it would take for the Great Commission to be fulfilled, if every Christian would disciple one other Christian, right? So if every Christian would take, uh, would take one person and disciple them and teach them, teach them how to study the Bible, how to pray, teach them how to, you know, walk with Jesus, teach them the importance of being a part of a local church, teach them how to teach others these kind of simple, simple truths, right? So if every Christian said, I'm going to disciple someone and I'm going to disciple them with a view toward them discipling others, if you started with 50 people, 50 Christians, and each of them said, I'm going to take one person and disciple them, and then a year later, you've got now 100 people, because each of those 50 chose one person and discipled them, and then you just kind of repeat that process. So then those 100 people take a year, and they each disciple someone, and then now you've got 200, and then those 200 disciple one person, and so on and so forth. Uh, there, there are 7.6 billion people in the world if you start with 50 Christians who are willing to disciple one person, every, you, you, would, you would cross the threshold of 7.6 billion people having heard the gospel and having been discipled in 28 years. So we're one, we're one generation away, conceivably, from fulfilling the Great Commission. If, if, if the entire church, if the global universal church says, I'm going to be content with attending church hearing sermons, reading books, listening to podcasts, and never actually obeying 2 Timothy 2, uh, verse 2. I'm just going to listen and consume and be strengthened by the grace of God, but I'm never going to entrust anything to others. Anything that I heard in the presence of many witnesses, I'm never going to entrust it to anyone else. The church stagnates. The, the, the progress of the church going forward uh, stagnates. But if every Christian disciples one other person, which is... Not as, not as difficult, or that, that sounds uh, remarkably doable, right? The idea of discipling one person, one generation from now, every single person on the planet hears, hears the gospel. So we have, to be, we have to be bold and disciple others. We have to be humble and be discipled by, by others. We have to be strengthened by the grace of God, and then we have to entrust that to other people. Verse 3, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. We talked about this last week in 2 Timothy 1, so we don't need to belabor it too much. Tim, Paul is inviting Timothy to suffer with him, right? Timothy, I'm suffering. I'm in chains. I am in prison. Jesus suffered for you. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. We want you to come and suffer with us. And specifically, suffer as a good soldier. This is the first of three uh, illustrations that we see in verses 4 5, and 6 that Paul uses to describe uh, the Christian life. He, he uses this elsewhere too. 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the same three, same three analogies. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Right? So, so the characteristic of a soldier that Paul says Christians should look to emulate in their spiritual lives is that of uh, 
having a singular focus, that of, of uh, you know, pushing aside distractions that might slow you down or compromise you or put you in danger, and instead having a singular focus. If you're, if you're deployed in, in Afghanistan, right, you're not, you're not, uh, your, your main priority is not your fantasy football team or your, uh, the new Marvel movie that came out or uh, your new iPhone, right? If you're, if you're deployed in Afghanistan, your main focus, your main mission is, I, I have a mission that I'm here to accomplish. I need to uh, protect my own life and protect the lives of the men that I am, am with. I have a singular focus, and I'm going to push aside any distractions. And Paul says that is what you have to do as a Christian, right? As a Christian, you have a mission, you have a focus, you have a, a plan, you have something that you've been sent to go do, and so have a singular focus. Be, be about the mission of God rather than being distracted by things of this of this world. Not just a soldier with a singular focus, but also an athlete with discipline and, uh, you know, with, with uh, being careful, right? An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. First thing you do whenever you learn a new sport is, is not just get the ball and run out onto the field and play because you don't know how to play. So you need to have someone explain to you the game, explain the rules, explain how you, how you play. This is, this is what you... This is legal. This is illegal. There's something more infuriating for, a, for an athlete. Right? Football is like the classic example because it's kind of, of all the sports at least that I care about, it's the one that's like most choreographed and where like it, there's the most kind of teamwork and everything has to kind of work together in like one design and one f- flow. There's nothing more infuriating than to have a... a uh, offensive coordinator, draw up a play, right? And everyone fulfills their assignments. Linemen block the guy that's in front of them, right? The, the safety bites on a play action, which kind of opens up a soft spot in the zone. The quarterback throws a perfect pass right to where it needs to go, right? Hits the wide receiver in stride. He runs, you know, 63 yards for a touchdown, right? It's, it's like the whole, point of, of, the whole point of offense in football is just to inch the football forward all afternoon long, three and a half hours of just every inch is hard fought and painful. And the goal is that you get into the end zone once, twice, three times. And when you finally do that and you think, this is awesome. We're about to go get a break. We're about to go get some water. We're about to, you know, um, you know, t- take a break on the sideline. And then all of a sudden some idiot that was on the other side of the field that wasn't even a part of the play illegally block someone in the back for no reason because the guy wasn't even a part of the play. Now you've got to bring the ball back to the, what was it? Back to the 37-yard line plus back 10 yards past that because this guy couldn't follow the rules. He couldn't play according to the rules. There's nothing more demoralizing and nothing more kind of deflating than those kinds of, of unforced errors and nonsense penalties. Paul says, when you compete uh, as an athlete, you know the rules, you learn the rules, and then you're disciplined and you're careful to follow the rules when you're playing. When you're a Christian, same thing. Be careful, be purposeful, be intentional, be disciplined. God has set up rules for the Christian life, so know them and follow them, right? Walk with God, worship God, trust in God, right? Join with a local church. Do, do these things and you will live. Live for yourself. Prioritize yourself. Worship yourself instead of God. Seat yourself on the throne instead of God. Do these things and you will die, right? There, there are rules that God set up for the game that is the Christian life. So be disciplined and be careful and follow them. 
So be a soldier who has a singular focus. Be an athlete who's disciplined and careful. Verse 6, it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So, so work hard, be diligent, be, right, uh, lean in and, and be like exert effort in the Christian life. Farmers do not work nine to five, right? Farmers work all day. At farm, during planting season and harvesting season, farmers are up before the sun comes up. They like start their day while it's still dark outside. They squeeze every possible second of sunlight that they can out of the day. They even made us all change our clocks so that they could have more time for daylight savings, right? Every single possible moment of sunlight, they need to be out. They need to be working. Same thing when they're harvesting. They need to be able to give every second of their time to harvesting and getting in all of the crops that they can. And it's the off season when you're not planting or harvesting, then you're like fixing all of your machinery, you're welding stuff, repairing stuff, painting stuff. It's just a grinding, relentless life of hard work and labor. That's what Paul says the Christian life is. It's not easy. It's not a vacation. It's not, oftentimes it's not fun, right? It's hard work. Indwelling sin never takes a day off. Your responsibility to fight against sin never takes a day off. It's a grind. It's a fight. Practicing the spiritual disciplines, loving your neighbor, mortifying sin, cultivating your relationship with Jesus, loving your spouse, prioritizing them above yourself, discipling your kids, making sure they don't grow up to be a serial killer, caring for other people. The Christian life is hard, hard work. And you should only be a Christian if you are willing to embark on this journey of hard, hard work. So verse 1, be strengthened by the grace of Christ. Verse 2, proclaim the gospel and disciple others. Verse 3, suffer like Jesus, like a soldier, like an athlete, and like a, a farmer. Verse 7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So if this seems, if this seems too far-fetched, if it seems difficult, then just, just, take, just take a beat. Take a second, think it over, let it sink in, right? And God will give you understanding. And how specifically, all right, so that's fun, Paul. So, so you want me to, to think over what you say, and the Lord will give you understanding. What should I think about? What should I dwell on? What should I meditate on? What should I remember in order to get understanding that's in Christ? In verse 8, Paul says, remember, remember Jesus Christ. Remember who Jesus is. Remember what he has done for you, right? Remember that the, the second person of the Trinity on his throne in heaven left and came to earth in the incarnation. Remember how he lived a perfect life. Remember how he died a sacrificial death, right? Remember how Jesus set off in this uh, life of itinerant ministry where he's filled by the Holy Spirit and preaching and teaching and, and healing. Remember how he ultimately came to Jerusalem and he died as a substitute for sin. Remember how Jesus took the punishment that was meant for us. Remember how Jesus took the punishment for sin upon himself and absorbed it. And how he went to the cross and he was punished as if he was a sinner. Remember that Remember that God the Father turned his face away from God the Son. Remember that Jesus in a matter of hours, drained the cup of God's wrath that would have taken an eternity to pour out on you. Remember Jesus Christ and how he lived and how he died, but also risen from the dead. 
So remember that Jesus is not still dead. He's not still in the grave. Remember, right, that would be remarkable enough. If Jesus left heaven, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death as a substitute for us, that would be remarkable enough, right? But the fact is, there are, there's countless teachers, leaders, enlightened people, right, gurus, who have taught helpful things and then died and stayed in the grave. Tons of people have done that. One guy in human history has died, but then has gotten up out of the grave. Right? He was resurrected in power and glory. And then, and then he ascended into heaven. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he lives there now. He is there now. He is present there now, and he's interceding for you and for, for me. He is, he is inviting people to trust in him uh, and to repent of their sins and to be reconciled to him because he's alive and he is active, right? And he personally, because he's alive and because he's interceding for his people, he personally assures his people that if they trust in him, they will never be lost, they will never be forsaken. If Jesus was dead, you would have no assurance that his death was of any value to you at all. But Jesus is alive, and his death is sufficient, and his intercession is ongoing even right now. Remember Jesus who was crucified, buried, but also risen from the dead. And this was accordance with the Old Testament scriptures, the offspring of David. So Paul is kind of hearkening back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David basically goes to God and says, God, I want to build you a temple, right? I've built this awesome palace, and I love living in it, and it's great, but I want to build you a temple, God. I have a house. I want you to have a house. And God's response to David is, I don't need you to build a house for me, right? I'm the king of the universe, I own the cattle and a thousand hills, I can build any house I want, whenever I want, wherever I want, I don't need you, David, to build a house for me, instead, I am going to build a house for you. And what I mean by that is, David, one of your offspring, uh, eventually one of your offspring is going to be raised up as the, the king who's going to succeed you on your throne. He will reign in righteousness, and his kingdom will go on forever and ever and ever. This is the Davidic covenant. And so when we see Jesus as the offspring of David, what we're seeing is Jesus is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus is the Davidic king. Jesus is the Davidic Messiah who came to save his people and rule over them forever and ever. So remember Jesus risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So Timothy, this is what I live and breathe and eat and sleep. This is what I care about. This is all that matters to me, right? This is what I proclaim at every opportunity. When I plant churches, it's around this message. When I disciple believers, it's around this message. When I write letters to churches in the New Testament, it's around this message. I've given my life to proclaiming the message of the person and work of Jesus, and I don't care about anything else. And frankly, it's landed me in jail, right? For which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. So I got arrested for preaching this gospel. I'm imprisoned for preaching this gospel. I'm in chains like a murderer or a terrorist because I have been preaching this gospel. That's why I'm in jail. That's why I'm bound. But the word of God is not bound. So, so uh, you know, the Roman government or, or the religious leaders that oppose me, they might be able to imprison me. They might be able to confine me. They might be able to put me in chains. They might be able to bind me and silence me, but they cannot bind the word of God. They cannot bind 
God's uh, mission and God's plan to build his church. God won't be silenced. God's word won't be suppressed. God's word can't be contained. It's, it's going to go forth. It will not return void. It will accomplish the task that God has for it. People will hear it. People will be convicted of their sin. People will turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Churches will be planted. People will be discipled. Lives will be changed. God's kingdom will be built and established. Right? All of that's going to happen. Right? I may very well, I, Paul, might rot in this jail cell and no one ever heard, hear another word from me. But if I perish, I perish. But what won't happen is that God's word will not be thwarted or hindered or, or bound. It will go forward. Verse 10, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So, so Paul says, that's, that's the reason why I suffer the way that I am. That's the reason why I'm willing to suffer the way that I am. Don't think for a second, Timothy, that I couldn't uh, sidestep all of this suffering and all of this persecution and all of this hardship in, in, just, a, in just a minute. Right? I, I, could ta- I could make one phone call. And I'm out of jail. I just, you know, call the right person, call in the right favor, and just assure that person I'm done with talking about Jesus. I'm done talking about Jesus. I'm not going to do it anymore. And I'm right back to the comfortable life that I had before this whole thing started. I'm right back to being, you know, in the high ranks of the Jewish religious leadership that I was in. All of the suffering in my life would come to an end. I could do that, but... But in reality, I could never do that, right? I, I could never stop enduring everything that I'm enduring because, because of God's word and of God's people. I endure what I do for the sake of the elect, right? I, I care about God too much. I care about the gospel too much. I care about God's people too much. The, the people that God has, has chosen from before the foundation of the world, before the beginning of time, these people that God has chosen to, to save and to reconcile to himself, Right? I care about these people and I will endure whatever I have to endure in order to see them hear the gospel and to see them come to Christ and to see them obtain the salvation that Jesus has purchased for them. So be strengthened in the grace of Jesus, proclaim the gospel and disciple others, suffer well like a soldier, athlete, or farmer. Remember Jesus, remember the gospel, and suffer for it so that people who hear it can be changed by it. Then in verse 11, Paul closes with a, with a, a hymn. He says, this saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we also will live with him. Right? So, so, this, so ultimately, Timothy, I'm not just suffering for the sake of the elect. I'm not just suffering so that the people who hear my gospel message can be blessed by it and can be, you know, drawn to God by it. I'm also suffering. I'm also dying so that I can live with Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm also willing to die for Jesus because I recognize that there is an eternal reward of life and joy that awaits me after it. So I'm happy to die to my preferences. I'm happy to die to my uh, desires. I'm happy to die to my plans, die to my agendas, die to my rights, die to my very self. I'm happy to die with Jesus because I know that if I do, I will be raised from the dead like Jesus was raised from the dead, and I will live with Jesus. The, the Christian life, 
According to this verse, the Christian life is one big, long, slow death sentence. But it's, it's followed by, it's punctuated by one big, long, eternal life of joy and glory where we live with God in his presence. We die now in the near term and we live with Jesus forever in glory. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Same principle, right? I'm suffering now. I'm being persecuted now. I'm experiencing hardship now. I'm in prison now, but I'm going to persevere. I'm going to endure knowing that in eternity, I won't be in prison forever. I won't be suffering forever. I won't be persecuted forever. I will be reigning with Jesus. I will be uh, you know, uh, having some semblance of kingship and an authority with Jesus forever and ever. Die now, live then. Endure now, persevere now, reign then. That's the promise that God offers his people in the gospel. So these first two are for God's people, right? Uh, if we die with him, we'll live with him, we endure with him, we'll reign with him. This third one is, is for non-Christians. This, this third verse, this third line is a warning for people who don't know Christ. If you deny Jesus... If you refuse to bow your knee to Jesus as your king, if you insist on, you know, on being on the throne of your own life instead of letting Jesus take his rightful place on the throne of your life, if you insist on earning your salvation yourself rather than, rather than trusting in what Christ has done for you, if you refuse to identify with Jesus, you refuse to be associated with him, and you deny him because you like the perks that come with denying him, if you deny Jesus, then he will deny you. So Paul's saying, if you deny Jesus, you will die. And when you die, you will stand before God, your creator, and he will demand that you give an account for how you lived your life, and you'll realize that you made a terrible error. And And you'll ask God for mercy, you'll ask Jesus to save you, you'll ask God to spare you from eternity in hell, and Jesus will deny you. And Jesus will say that he doesn't know who you are and that he never knew who you are. And God will demand that you pay the penalty for your sin all by yourself. You could have given it to Jesus. You could have trusted in him and let him pay the penalty for your sin. And instead, you will pay for your own sin all by yourself. You could have enjoyed eternity in God's glorious presence. And instead, you will spend eternity separated from God, suffering under his terrible wrath. If you deny Jesus, he will deny you. And then this last line is is a a word of encouragement. It's a word of of, uh, admonishment, but also a word of encouragement to believers. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. So there's something, there's something different about uh, verse 13 being faithless in verse 13 than what we saw in verse 12, uh, outright denial. There's something less permanent, less resolute, right? Denying Jesus is refusing to trust in him. It's just this continual, persistent, uh, ongoing rebellion and rejection of Jesus. And then verse 13 is something else. Verse thir- 13 is, is uh, describing a Christian who experiences a temporary lapse in 
faith, a Christian whose faith wavers, right? A Christian whose suffering comes, persecution comes, they don't know how to respond, they find themselves doubting God, doubting if God is there, doubting if God is good, doubting if God is able to to take care of them. They experience worry and anxiety. And Paul says if that happens, Jesus will remain faithful because he cannot deny himself. This last line is, is interesting and kind of unexpected given the first three, right? You'd expect if we die with him, we'll live with him. If we endure with him, we'll reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. And if we're faithless, he will be faithless. Now, that kind of just follows logically. It follows the cadence of all of these other lines. That's what we would expect. But Paul says that's not how the unconditional grace of God works in the life of his people when he saves them, Right? It's not that if you are faithless, he will be faithless. If you waver, Jesus wavers. If you let go of him, he will let go of you. If you are faithless, Jesus remains faithful. Jesus does not let go of his people, ever. God does not lose his children, ever. If you struggle, if you waver, if you doubt, if you're fearful, if you're afraid, if you're not sure if you even believe or not, God is faithful. God will hold you. God will keep you. God's faithfulness is not called into question because of our faithlessness. God's unconditional love and his unchanging character and his sufficient grace is contingent upon one thing, and that's himself. That's his character, his person. Not us, not our circumstances, not, our, not the strength of our faith, not how confident we are, not our recent track record of successes and failures. God's faithfulness is rooted in God and in his unchanging character. So Paul doesn't say, uh, you need to be faithful to God so that he will be faithful to you. Paul says, God is faithful. And as a response to God's faithfulness, you pursue faithfulness. God has been, is, and always will be faithful. He never changes. He cannot deny himself. He cannot stop being who he is. So live in view of that encouraging reality. God is not faithful because we trust in him. Rather, we trust in God because he is faithful in and of himself. And that's our calling this morning. Live in view of who Jesus is, our faithful, unconditional Savior, and respond by trusting him and dying to ourselves and enduring with him and suffering with him, knowing that in the end, we will be with him and we will enjoy him forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your unconditional, never-changing, always and forever love. We thank you that you have saved us, not because of who we are or what we have done, but that you have saved us because of your sovereign grace. We pray, Lord, that we could live in view of who you are and what you have done for us. We pray that we could trust you and obey you and follow you in costly discipleship for your glory and for our joy. It's in Christ's name that we pray.
Amen.